Hello, listeners. Welcome back to season three of Everything Is Public Health, a show about how everything is public health. It's very self-explanatory. I'm MJ, and I'm Cass. So, if you know nothing about public health, welcome. Welcome. Good to have you. If you know a little bit about public health, also welcome. In fact, if you are anyone, welcome. We're very inclusive in this podcast. So, don't know what that intro is doing, but anyway, this episode is about welfare, which is something that gets tossed around all the time in political discourse. And I feel like before, you know, we have critical race theory, BLM, and other movements we have now. In the 90s and early 2000s, I feel like welfare was the trigger word. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember being a young person in the 80s and 90s and then into the 2000s and hearing about welfare queens and welfare babies. And it was very much a derogatory term that you were making a life choice such that you couldn't and didn't want to support yourself. And so you were dependent upon the welfare system. And and that's, yeah, it was, it was a very derogatory term. Yeah. And that was sort of the discourse around it. Like, why do you think was controversial? Like, why do people get so emotionally worked up about it? I mean, I think we have in the US, for better or for worse, a very independent focus that individuals can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and and move forward. And the idea that we would need to provide someone assistance during a time of struggle that's sort of antithesis or antithetical to to that concept of independence. Yeah, that's sort of the gist of it. I also think that a lot of it is tied up. There's like intersectionality with between that and like gender and race. And I don't know what the immigration landscape was in the 90s and early 2000s. I don't know if the press covered immigration as heavily as they do now. An episode for another time. Right, yes. <laughs> there was an individual who sort of took over the country's response to immigration. And prior to him being in that role, basically nobody was concerned. Nobody <laughs> about immigration and his whole job was to make people concerned about it. Just like uh-huh. prior to Nixon declaring a war on drugs and Reagan really pushing that forward, really people <laughs> weren't really concerned about drug use, right? Incarceration was on the decline. People didn't really care about drug use. But, and this ties back to the concept of welfare, in contrast to prohibition, where the focus was on demonizing producers, right. the war on drugs took the tactic of demonizing consumers. And welfare was sort of a code word for Dog whistle. Yep, for folks who were might from a minoritized background, otherwise marginalized community. And that was sort of the code for these are people who are engaging in behaviors and they're not taking care of themselves or their families. And so I think all of that, the war on drugs, popular TV shows, news media, how we're portraying some of these things all really influenced how we think about the term welfare and also just the system in and of itself, even beyond the term. Yeah. And I think a lot of the controversy was engineered, just like most controversies are today, where the image of welfare recipient is crafted to represent certain groups of people, right? If the image of welfare recipient was, you know, just just an example, maybe they the media portray them as poor whites. I feel like the conversation around welfare would have been much different than the conversation around welfare, how it actually evolved. And I think you you got it right. Like people, especially Americans, are obsessed with the I call the myth of individualism. That is everything that got you to where you are is completely within your control and responsibility, right? And under that assumption, giving money to people who quote unquote didn't work for it would seem quote unquote unfair. And so I, I'm a very privileged person. So I unfortunately don't have any personal experience or n- know people that 
have welfare. Oh, actually, my mom was uh, terminated from her job of like 12 years, and then she was on unemployment for a few months. But it was not the same type of quote unquote welfare that people receive because at the end of the day, we knew she was going to get another job. At the end of the day, we knew that, you know, we had savings, she had savings. So it wasn't the same. So I don't know. Do you have any personal experience or know people that have? Yeah. So my dad, he served in the army uh, at the end of the Vietnam War. And when he came back, he was on food stamps for a little while and just to sort of support his transition back. My brother and his partner at the time, my brother was struggling with work and his partner was unemployed and they had a young kid, my nephew. And so they received social service support. So they had food stamps, SNAP, they had welfare, et cetera. Was it SNAP back then too? or It wasn't called SNAP back then. It was called food stamps. Right. I think we have to do a whole series about like, interesting how we don't take care of our veterans that well. <laughs> it's very weird, like how we, we talk a lot of hype around, you know, our troops and stuff. But the fact that, like you said, your dad after the Vietnam War had to be on food stamps, definitely something that we should discuss in the future. But yeah, so you, you obviously have a little bit more experience. So I'm going to be relying on you. Uh, also, you have, what, 10 plus years of public health experience, so I'll, I might be relying on you for some information that we're about to go over. But needless to say, this is a very fraught topic, which is why I think it's more important to talk about, because sometimes when a topic is more sensitive, people tend to avoid going to like the facts and figures and stuff. They just rely on their emotions, which is why I think it's important to talk about. The first thing we're going to do is to define what welfare is. To start, welfare is a very, very general term. It is an umbrella term, essentially, in the broadest sense They are programs that provide assistance to those in need or, and this is a framing that I find both charming and also hilarious because (laughs) of the state it is today, to frame it in a more positive way, they are there to ensure people's basic needs are met, especially those who need assistance. Ideally, this is not the case. (laughs) That is definitely not the way America approaches it, as we're about to get into. And there are a ton of programs like a ton. So welfare is actually not referring to anything specific. So I was just going to say, when I first got into public health, this is something that I was pretty, I don't, I didn't even think that like stunned is too strong of a word. Like I was pretty stunned (laughs) to learn because of my, my whole life growing up, like, oh, people are on welfare, not really recognizing that welfare was this vague vague term that people threw around that generally meant like you, you're on one of these social service programs. But there are lots of lots of these programs. So there are several big buckets that we we can think about. So the first big bucket is cash assistance. And so this is the Supplemental Security Income, SSI. Um, it's similar to but distinct from Social Security that you get when you get older. So Social Security, it's an entitlement program. You pay into it as part of your taxes while you're working kind of like a retirement savings account, but then sort of how much you pay in, you sort of get back out when you reach a certain age. TANF and TANF is Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. This is sort of like what I always thought of as welfare, but but it's very specifically, it is cash assistance for families who are in need. There's also the earned income tax credit, which a lot of folks don't necessarily think of this as falling into the bucket, but generally... If you have kids and depending on your income, you get a tax credit that sort of benefits the family to make sure that folks can 
can live and and support themselves. I have only done taxes one or two times in my life, maybe more, but uh, I am definitely not familiar with taxes. Are you a tax person or do you do you like <laughs> offshore that to a third party as well? So when I was younger, I used to do my own taxes. I'd get wow. that program and you know, put everything in. It was really simple when I was younger. Like, oh yeah, it was, you know, always the 1040 easy. I didn't have a lot to worry about. I was young, you know, whatever, had some basic deductibles. And then when James and I got married, because he's a small business owner, it definitely complicates everything. And so now the accountants for his small business actually do all of our taxes because it just gets to be a total mess. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, like you mentioned social security and supplemental security income is two separate things. Regarding social security, is that, do you get to decide how much you pay into it? Or is that like a set, like they just do it automatically? Yeah. It just, you pay in based on a percentage, like a percentage of your taxes, your federal taxes go to Medicare and then Social Security. And you can choose to pay extra taxes. Like there have been issues since the prior administration changed some of the tax laws. Oh boy. And not everyone has enough money held out of their paycheck, even if they say like take out as much as you need. And I, for example, pay several hundred dollars a month extra mm. in voluntary taxes because otherwise we get schmoed at the end of the year. And then, you know. Okay. Uh, this is kind of a tangent, but it's a very quick tangent, I promise. Do you recommend people doing their own taxes? Well, so I would have said. Like how much time does it previ- take? If you have simple taxes, if you're filing as an individual and you have really straightforward taxes, you just have one W 2, sure, you can probably do your own taxes. The problem is the IRS has limited resources, limited personnel. And rich people are very good at not paying taxes, and they're very good at hiring lawyers to continue helping them not pay taxes. And individual folks who are, you know, maybe lower on the socioeconomic status are actually more likely to get audited than people of higher Mm. income. And so with that in mind, it might be worthwhile paying a little bit of money to make sure you've got a tax professional checking. Like It would be great if people could do their own taxes, but also I recognize some of the challenges that come along with that. We've been audited before, and it's a real pain in the butt. And so whatever you can do to avoid that is really helpful. Yeah. Oh, that must be... Zero out of 10, don't recommend getting audited. Yeah, that's, that must be rough. Anyway, we'll talk about this later when we talk about like tax credit stuff. But anyway, so to moving on to the second bucket of welfare, this is the medical bucket. So Medicaid, which is the state-run insurance for the needy, federally funded state-run insurance for the needy. And we'll discuss what the needy means in a future episode. CHIP, which is for all intents and purposes similar to Medicaid, but is specifically targeted for children in need. Yeah, CHIP stands for Child Health Insurance Program. Yes, uh, or some people call it S-CHIP for State Child Health Insurance Program. Uh, Again, also state-run as well, federally funded state-run. And there is, and I kid you not, like half a dozen to a dozen other small miscellaneous medical assistance programs like everywhere. So we can't cover all of them because they sort of vary region by region. But that's sort of the medical bucket, essentially providing insurance, health insurance and other sort of health services. So the next big bucket are services that fall under the umbrella of food. So there's SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Formally, this was referred to as food stamps. We also see school lunch programs, lunch and breakfast programs to make sure that 
students are not hungry when they're trying to learn. And then we also have WIC, Women, Infant, and Children Food Program, which can provide additional food resources, eggs, cheese, dairy, milk, all those kinds of things uh, for women, infant, and children. And also there can be referrals to other services or education that might be needed for supporting healthy nutrition. Yeah. And we'll definitely return to this bucket in the future. And the next bucket is housing, a big behemoth of its own topic that we'll sure to get to. So when we talk about housing, there's generally speaking two major buckets. There's Section 8 housing, which is the landlord is still private, right? The federal program is there to su- support you rent-wise, like rental housing assistance paid directly to the private landlord. So it's not like I'm not giving you cash directly to pay your landlord. I'm paying the landlord directly. And then there's public housing, which is essentially government-owned housing. So those are two big buckets. And there's other uh, things that's paid to private uh, entities as well. So there's low-income housing tax credit for developers. So if a developer wants to build low-income housing, they will get some sort of tax write-off or something like that. So, But generally speaking, when we think about housing under welfare, it's Section 8 or public housing. And then energy and utilities, which is very complicated that we won't get into, but basically same thing, supporting people uh, with their energy and utility bills. Oftentimes, Actually, I think all the times it's never paid directly to the individual. It's always like, uh, we'll write it off or we'll pay your utilities companies directly. So the people actually don't receive any cash. So then the next big bucket is education. And there can be Pell grants that don't need to be repaid. There are also just separately other kinds of grants that you can get through the federal government for school that do need to be repaid, but Pell grants don't. There are also Title I grants to local educational authorities. This is funding for extra academic support to help students in high-poverty areas, high-poverty schools. Yeah, this is paid directly to the school. And there are tons of other... When I say tons, I don't mean generous. I mean, like, <laughs> there's a lot of different numbers of programs out there. Not that, you know, the, the programs are generous in any way. Um, and we'll discuss that uh, in definitely in a separate Public Health Explained episode. And then there's other miscellaneous stuff like employment training and, you know, other sort of health services or any sort of, you know, social services that are wrapped under this welfare umbrella as well. The point is that there's tons of these programs. Like when we say welfare, if someone say, oh, like he or she or they are on welfare, you need to say, okay, what, which one? Because there's like dozens of them and each one of them mean very different things. So uh, we'll go over these programs in depth in future episodes. But I think right now I want to focus on the themes that we see across these programs. So the number one is that the U.S. welfare programs aren't that good compared to other countries for many reasons. And the first reason, as we just gone over, is that it is very fragmented. Just because it's fragmented and piecemeal means that it's not efficient. I don't know. What's your take on, like, do you think it should be better, more centralized, or are there any strengths to being fragmented? So one could argue that there are some benefits to having fragmented systems in a way that allows different jurisdictions to do the things that best meet the needs of their constituents, their residents. But then we also see people not having access to adequate resources. There's not some kind of systematic set of criteria that are put into place, and it can lead to, I think, perhaps more harms than yeah. good. And having this fragmented approach is so United States of America. Yes. Like that is that is so quintessentially sort of how yeah. we handle things. And we've talked about this before. Like we're spending so much money yeah. after harms have happened. 
And if we did a better job, like other economically peer countries, of investing in our social services programs now, before, and giving people what they need to be able to be successful and thrive, not just survive, then we would probably spend less money because we're already spending it way more than we need to. And if we used it on more preventative, supportive services in a more structured way, program that met the needs of everyone, then we would be in a better place. Yeah. And I think also from like a health policy research perspective, having data that's like a little bit of data is hosted in this agency, a little bit of data is hosted in that agency. It makes research a pain because the researchers or some grad students somewhere has to do the work of piecing together all those data together. So it's in a cohesive nationwide sample almost. So yeah, like, I don't know. I'm still not convinced that what we're doing has any sort of virtues to it. Uh, And also, we know for a fact, at least compared to our similar countries, that it is not enough. Like Our welfare program is simply inadequate to get what everyone needs. We talked about in the beginning, the positive framing is the welfare program is to make sure that everyone's basic needs are met. But that is not our approach to it. Our approach is the reverse, which is you need to earn welfare, earn in quotes. And that's, you know, segueing into one of the themes that a lot of this is predicated under the assumption that it is not a basic right. It used to be, prior to the 90s, it used to be welfare was thought of as this is something that people should get. This is a basic needs and we need to supply this basic needs. But after the 90s, it turned into something that people have to earn and turn into a short-term thing that is entire purpose is to get people back to work rather than meeting their needs. I don't know, like having welfare that needs to be earned, I think it's just counterproductive in many ways. Yeah, it sort of defeats defeats the purpose, right? The purpose is to provide for people when they're in a period of their life when they can't provide for themselves for whatever reason. But if we say you have to earn it, then we get to ascribe who's worthy of receiving it. And then we don't have to give everyone the support that they need. And we can continue to oppress certain segments of our population that have been oppressed for centuries. Yes. And this is the intersectionality that I was uh, referring to earlier. Like, who is making those decisions about who gets to receive what? You know? Well, our elected officials. And for a very long time, if you looked across the US, <laughs> who were those elected officials? What did they look like? Right? Wow, they all look the but same. I think some, something that I saw with my brother and his partner receiving welfare at the time, which I now I know was TANF, but we had we thought about it as welfare. There were work requirements. So you had to be either actively looking for a job or you had to have some kind of other income in order to qualify for sort of additional welfare. That was never enough to pay for the childcare that was needed so that then people could work. And so it was this vicious cycle of you don't get everything you you might need to be successful because you're not working, but you can't work because you don't have enough for childcare. And it just sort of kept feeding, feeding in. Ideally, the whole premise of welfare is that we give you enough so that you could not feel the need that you're like treading water all the time. Like you said, it's in a vicious cycle where we give them just enough that they're not drowning, but we don't give them enough to like get them out of the water, metaphorically speaking. Which is the whole goal of public health, right? Like keep people from falling in the water in the first place. Yeah. But if they're there, we should do everything we can to pull to them pull out. them up instead of like, oh, here's a little bit of help, you know, just so you could tread water a little bit longer. And then there's other themes that I find very problematic. So for example, a lot of welfare 
is tax credit, which requires employment. Like you need to be able to file taxes to receive tax credit, which kind of defeats the purpose of a tax credit if you think about it. Because if you require someone to have employment to receive tax credit, that essentially means a large swath of people that may need assistance actually don't get it. Well, and this comes back to a concept that we should probably do a whole episode on about, but universal basic income. Yes, and there is this misperception that if you give people a little bit of resources, it will discourage them from working. But what we have seen with some experiments that have been done recently, if you say, "Here's universal basic income," and you can work if you if you can find work, great. But regardless of what your status is, you get this income. And what you see is people are taking more jobs. People are are more likely to be able to get additional opportunities to be able to support themselves because they aren't concerned about losing that universal basic income. A lot of the way we structure our welfare programs are you get this support, but then if you start making too much money, it goes away and you sort of lose that buffer or that cushion because we've talked about before the federal poverty line is abysmal and how we can expect people to raise a family of four on the on the federal poverty level is crazy. Absurd. Yeah. But if once you get above that, then you're no longer qualified versus universal basic income that says you will get this amount no matter what. And then you can put yourself into a situation where you can earn more money and you can better the lives of yourself and your family. Yeah. And there's some data that suggests like even if they don't, quote unquote, do something productive, a universal basic income reduces a lot of like crime. Even if they don't do what you want them to do, the fact that they have this income, preliminary data have suggested that they're just less likely to pursue criminal activities. Because they can meet their basic needs without having to engage in behaviors that we think of as antisocial and and criminal. And we hear from workers with some of the community violence prevention programs that we work with that often the participants in these programs, they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They don't know how they're going to feed other family members that they feel responsible for, whether it's their younger siblings or even their own kids. And so people make choices that they might not otherwise make, and that can cause harms to society, harms to themselves. And we've said so many times before, we are expecting people to make rational choices in a set of irrational circumstances. And if we can do things to make those circumstances more rational by giving people the supportive services that they need, then they're not going to make those ira- what we would think of as irrational choices. Yeah. And there are other th- similar things that we'll sort of just run through them. One is that you need to apply for them. It's not automatic. So if you lack the ability to apply for them, i.e. no internet access or whatever, you don't get them. And also, a lot of these are state-run, which means wild, and I mean absolutely wild variations between states. Like some states, very generous. Some states, I am convinced, are actively working on not handing out welfare to people. Oh, I completely agree. (laughs) Yeah. The set of requirements they put into place to be eligible make it so that basically no one, (laughs) and it comes back to the idea of who's deserving of help. Yeah. Some welfares are given to private entities, like the whole trickle-down economics fashion is like, oh, if we give these private entities tax credit, maybe they will do something nice for the people in need and uh, I'll let you ponder about whether that actually happens or not. And then, you know, generally, the American people are adverse to just directly helping people, right? They have to go through intermediates like food stamps or now SNAP. And that's something that we'll definitely discuss in the Public Health Explained series that will follow this. So that's what welfare is, right? But, you know, because this, this podcast is called Everything is Public Health, how is welfare public health? What do you think? 
how would you argue that welfare is or is in public health? So the whole goal of public health is to keep harms from happening and to make our populations, our communities as healthy as possible. And so I see the general umbrella of welfare programs being public health because it is meant to intervene when individuals are in a situation where they can't meet those basic needs, which are so important to the health and well-being of themselves, their families, and communities. Yeah. And for me, the reason why this is public health is rooted in the fact that our current system is, for all intents and purposes, unequal and unfair. So not only are there millions of Americans without their basic needs met, many more millions of Americans are just one accident or bad luck away from falling into that group. And to not have any social safety net or to have a very bad social safety net, we will essentially abandon millions of Americans in situations where it is virtually impossible to climb out of. And we already know that we already know the connection between not meeting basic needs and health, right? Like even if you don't, even if you say like, oh, I've never been on welfare, like, I don't, I don't need any help. Even if you don't need help right now, you could just be one accident or one sickness or one string of bad luck away from falling into it. Just like health insurance, right? Since we are a country where health insurance is tied with employment, being unemployed for a lot of people means all of a sudden, no health insurance. And then who knows what can happen next. So when people don't have the capacity to meet their needs, if they have a health care issue, for example, and they don't have the capacity to see a primary care physician or other sort of preventative health care provider, they may end up in the emergency department and then we're paying for that through uncompensated care and other issues or individuals rack up medical debt and continue to sort of be in this cycle. And to tie back to something I said earlier, like we're already spending money in this country addressing the things that happen when we don't take care of people, things that happen when we don't provide people with the capacity to meet their basic needs because we have set up structures and systems and communities where we intend for people to not be able to thrive. And then we're like, oh my gosh, we're spending all of this money downstream. When if we took all of that money and spent it in a more preventative fashion with a more public health approach, we would spend way less money and everyone would be healthier. Yeah. If that still doesn't convince you, just very quick, comparable countries who spend more on social welfare as a percentage of their GTP, GDP, also tend to be healthier and happier. And, you know, correlation and not causation. But when something is a correlation, we can strengthen that correlation by finding a possible logical mechanism of which there are many. So we've, in general, we know that when people have their basic needs met, they tend to be more productive, they tend to be healthier. And there's many logical mechanisms why it explains why when countries or nations spend more on welfare as a percentage of their GDP, their populace are just better off. And uh, well, that's something that we'll exp- uh, definitely explore in the future. But for right now, should we advocate for a better welfare program? And, you know, better, I chose that word better because not necessarily more, but better in a sense that our current program definitely isn't doing as much as, as we want or it should do. So, you know. So I would I would argue, well, first, I yes, I agree with you. Better coordination, better, more generous services provided, making sure that everybody has what they need. There's a lot of research, like if we can get people into safe and stable housing before- Housing first, It's necessary to get people into safe and stable housing before you can start to address other issues, right? And so housing first policies, thinking about expanding who is eligible for these resources, these services, and what they are. But I would also say in the short term, we are going to have to spend more. Like We need more as in more dollars, more people doing the work. And it is going to take us a long time 
to get to a point where we start to see the benefits in the long term because we did not get to this place overnight. It has been decades and centuries of policymaking that have led to us having in the intention of certain folks in our population not being able to thrive. So what can our listeners do? So as you talked about, MJ, a lot of these programs are federally funded, but run by the state. So that means that when you vote, you need to make sure you are voting in your state elections. We've talked before about voting down ballot. So not just voting in the presidential election, but the midterms, and also thinking about who your local elected officials are, your city council, your mayor, all of those things, because individuals at every level of the system are influencing both how many resources are being allocated to these programs and then how we're choosing who is eligible. Yeah. Obviously, other other tools that you as an individual can have access to is advocacy, donations to the right places, uh, even volunteering. There are many things that you can contribute individually, but I think for systemic change, voting, I think, is something that uh, we should all exercise our rights to. So over the next couple of weeks, we will examine some of these programs we've mentioned in the opening of this episode in more depth in a series of related Public Health Explained episodes. But for now... Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. Welfare is public health, and I hope that this episode makes you appreciate why having a social safety net is important for everyone, not just the ones who need it. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen. It helps the show immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we miss an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. More information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below. Listen we have a Patreon page that is also our website. Visit the site for all major updates and bonus material that I post uh, on a semi-regular basis. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can support us on our Patreon page as well. You can find a link for that in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health. <laughs>